Devin, I got a quick question for you before we get started on this episode. All right, Tyler, shoot. I know that you used to be a chaplain Mm -hmm. in the hospital where you worked. And I'm curious about the difference between being a chaplain and being a clinical ethicist. Um, Mm -hmm. What are the similarities? What are the differences? How are they hard in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's fairly different for me, at least, in the two roles that I've had, which I think will pertain to this particular episode, is that as a chaplain, I got a lot closer to patients and families than I do as a clinical ethicist, Um, which isn't to say I don't get to know patients and families as a clinical ethicist, but as a chaplain, there were some patients that I would visit every day, maybe for like an hour at a time. And I just don't have the time for that as a clinical ethicist. Um, And I don't typically just get to spend time with no agenda. Um, There is usually, as a clinical ethicist, something I'm in the room to ask or to get a conversation going for a particular purpose. But as a chaplain, sometimes I could just go in and say, how are you doing today? And we could just have a conversation about how a patient was doing. And so when you just have open conversations like that, you can become really close to people because they're sharing just parts of their lives, um, kind of who they are, what their needs are, what their desires are, in a way that's a little bit different, a little bit more friendly than, say, the work as a clinical ethicist where I'm asking maybe those same kinds of questions, but with a very particular purpose in mind. That's really interesting. Um, Do you feel like your work as a chaplain helped prepare you to be a clinical ethicist? I think for sure. So being comfortable sitting with people's vulnerability, sitting with people's hurt and pain, right, with no agenda to try to fix it or to try to make something of it, right, just like accompanying people in those really difficult times, I think is very uncomfortable, right? So people want to try to fix things. They want to try to wrap things up. They want to try to make everything better. And that's just really not possible in most situations that we deal with as clinical ethicists, right? These aren't like solvable cases. That's why they come to us. Um, So being able to sit in that ambiguity in those difficult spaces, I think being a chaplain really helped me to be more comfortable in those spaces. That's one of the things that is challenging about being a clinical ethicist because so much of what's going on in the the case or the conflict or between the, the family members, whoever it may be, is really contextual and what i mean by that is like it's all based on these stories and these lived experiences that all of these individual players have had and sometimes we just get dropped in and sometimes it feels like we're getting dropped in in the middle of a movie and Mm. we got to figure out the plot we got to figure out the major characters like what's the conflict all at the same time while there's this kind of unspoken expectation that we're going to do something about it and to fix it so right yeah wow so we have a a case today that's Again, just like a tough, right? These are all tough cases. Sorry to listeners who don't like tough cases. (laughs) This is not the season for you. But another case in which um, the clinical ethicist actually got, Susie got incredibly close to her patient, which made this case hard. But I don't know that it made it hard in a bad way, right? I, I, I don't want clinical ethicists to say, you don't want to get too invested in patients because it'll just make your job impossibly difficult. I think it's okay to sometimes be really invested in patients and their families while at the same time having enough distance from the case to you know, be able to sort of think about it beyond merely what the patient wants or desires.
Welcome to Bioethics for the People, where we discuss bioethics and complex questions in medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor Bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. And I am joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gipp. All right, welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. We're continuing our series of looking at challenging cases from multiple different perspectives throughout clinical ethics. So today we have um, a special guest who is going to present one of her cases uh, for discussion for us. So, Okay, uh, good morning, Tyler. I'm Susie Cirusi from Buenos Aires, Argentina. I've been a lawyer for 35 years uh, from now. I'm a magister in bioethics, and PhD and postdoc in criminal law and bioethics. And I work at one of our uh, uh, huge national pediatric centers uh, here in Buenos Aires. Uh, it's a high complex uh, pediatric center. Susie, you're the first international guest I think we've ever had. Um, could you tell those of us who don't know, is bioethics different? In Argentina, is it very similar to how it is in America, or how, how would you say, you know, sort of how bioethics works where you are? Okay, uh, it had some similarities, and it's different in some ways, because, uh, you know, we are Latinos, and um, for... I, I was uh, brought up uh, and studied uh, bioethics from an um, Anglo-Saxon point of view, so I have a mix of it. But here in Latin America, family and communities are very important. Uh, so when you talk about autonomy, uh, it's not so uh, a principle so strength as it is in North America, for example. Uh, we are more like, uh, you know, a huge uh, community group of people just making decisions with the patient and with the family. And the family implies in pediatrics, uh, there are palmates, uh, teachers, uh, dog, cat, grandpas, all of that. Uh, so it may be quite different in that sense. But uh, the principles that we applied, um, the perspectives that we apply are quite similar. And is your role in the teaching hospital, are you the clinical ethicist who gets called when there are complex cases? Yeah, I'm one of it. I'm in the bioethics committee and I work uh, in a, like a network of palliative care and bioethics all over the country. So when there is a problem, because not, you know, uh, there are huge differences in Argentina between uh, big cities and the inner Argentina. So uh, we have everything here in the city of Buenos Aires, for example, but when you go 100 kilometers far from Buenos Aires, it's not the same. So we are in a network to help the people that are lonely, uh, making decisions, hard decisions. So we are like a network that's working on that. But so Susie, the case that you brought us today, is it from a big medical center in Buenos Aires or is it from a smaller community hospital? No, it's from our hospital, and I was involved in that a long, long time ago. 
and it's uh, one of the hardest cases that we have and we still discuss them at our center. All right, well, why don't you start us off then with the case? Okay, uh, this was a patient that uh, we I met when she was six years old, when she came to our hospital. She was diagnosed when she was more or less three years old uh, with neurofibromatosis and uh, cephoscoliosis, that is a neurodegenerative disease. And uh, when I met her, uh, she was having breathing problems, um, uh, but she was doing quite well. She, she was, uh, you know, a very good patient. She had a strong family behind her, her mother and her three brothers. Uh, his dad was absent, we didn't know him. And uh, she make it really good until she was more or less uh, 16, 17 years old, that uh, everything becomes like a, in a big, huge slope. And uh, she began with breathing problems. She was diagnosed with a big, huge tumor in her back, that is a schwannoma. And uh, in that moment, uh, she uh, asked me to, to help her uh, decide and explain to the uh, surgical team that uh, she would accept ventilator, she would accept to go into the ICU, but uh, just for a little bit time, that if everything turns bad, she didn't want to die in the ICU that she didn't want the ventilator and that she wanted to be sent home. Uh, she was 16 uh, in Argentina to in those days. We didn't have the, uh, you know, the progressive or the doctrine of mature minor applied in our by, uh, civil code. Uh, we had some uh, thoughts about it in the bioethics committee. Uh, because we always involve children in decision-making, but this was different. I mean, it was a teenager just saying, I don't want to stay in the ICU. I don't want to die in the ICU. I want to be at home. Tyler, can you explain to our listeners what a mature minor doctrine is? So the, the mature minor doctrine is when a teenager demonstrates or uh, shows the, the, the team or um, the healthcare providers that they are sufficiently mature and sufficiently capable of making medical decisions. And then um, sometimes it's it's written into statutory uh, language in the state, but in most cases, it's, it's kind of an informal process where the teenager, although not, although still legally a minor, is able to exercise those specific medical decision-making powers. Um, it's quite uncommon, um, I think, uh, in most states, but it does exist. And it sometimes it gets confused with uh, this idea of an emancipation of a minor. So it's not the, it's, it's not the case that you, they, they go to court and appeal to be uh, illegally an adult. It's generally just re restricted to these um, medical care decisions. And, and often it, it, it comes up when there is disagreement between the parents or the guardians and the child. And um, in order to 
go against what the patient's parents are looking for, asking for, they, the teenager becomes the decision maker um, for all intents and purposes. So that's what, that's what I understand about the mature minor doctrine. How about anything I missed there, Devin? Yeah, I, that's all right. Um, I think the only thing I would add is, I think like you said, it's very rare. The times when I've seen it come up is not only when there's a disagreement, but it tends to come up when a child like the one that Susie's describing has had a chronic illness almost from birth. And so they're very accustomed to living with their disease or with their illness. And so they have a lot of insight into what is cap- what they're capable of in terms of living with that, what they would want for the future. You know, this isn't a, a sort of new onset disease where suddenly we're asking a teenager to like make lifelong decisions or potentially life limiting decisions. Um, I think the idea is that a child who has a chronic illness, who's lived with it their whole lives, has more insight into their future, their possible future, than maybe a different sort of child. And so their maturity comes about by living with that illness for a long time. So Susie, is that did, is that the sense that you got from this child, is that she was very well accustomed to her illness and that she, that made her more mature in making decisions about it? Yeah, it's uh, the sense we have with all our patients that are chronic, chronically ill, uh, that uh, they got some sense of maturity that other children don't have because they had to get accustomed to a lot of things that are not uh, child thought. Uh, so uh, this is what we thought about this, this girl. And uh, let me tell you that it was the case because she was our patient since she was six. And when we got to the end of this case, she was ni- 19. She was uh, a grown up for our legislation. So it's mm-hmm. quite, quite hard because uh, making transition from childhood to adolescence uh, to adulthood uh, here is very difficult with chronic illness from pediatrics because not uh, not all adult medical doctors know how to treat childhood disease. Tyler, have you ever been asked to fill out or help someone, a pediatric patient, fill out an advanced directive? Um, no, that, that, that's what was interesting with, um, with the case as Susie's presenting it so far is that in my experience, minors don't execute advanced directives because they, they have somebody else to speak for them, a guardian or a parent or, you know, some sort of um, a conservator uh, in order to speak for them and make decisions for them. It's really only in the context of, I guess, the, the child wanting to express certain wishes that I, I think that we would probably use that, although I'm not sure that the advanced directive as a tool is the best one for it. But that, that that's my experience. It's very unusual to invoke the mature minor doctrine and also really unusual for an, uh, a, pedia- a minor to execute an advanced directive. So this is a really interesting case. Uh, and so in that moment, we decided she was wrong, which was okay, that uh, we are going to stand along here. Uh, we explained to the uh, surgical team that this was, uh, you know, a proportionate decision uh, that a child was making. Her mom was uh, agreed with this decision and her brothers too agreed with this decision. Uh, she went to surgery and uh, she only spent three days in the ICU and she recovered for the surgery. 
she she was then again okay. Uh, even though she was with this very uh, difficult uh, illness, uh, she has a very, very uh, team-like uh, adolescent. Uh, she has her friends, she went to school, she likes to make sports, to do sports, and uh, she really enjoys life. Uh, but uh, with the progression of the disease, this was a little bit complicated. She had to spend much time uh, in our hospital. And so she began to, to think about some decisions she wanted to make. And uh, when she recovered from the ICU and uh, they, they could just uh, take part of an 85% of the tumor from her back uh, she just go through, went through chemo and went through radiotherapy, and she was doing great. But uh, she began with problems to just stand still. She couldn't just be sitting on her chair because her uh, uh, back was like a collapse because of the illness. And so uh, she uh, she was saying that uh, if she was going to die, she wanted to be a transplant donation uh, for other people, and that she wanted to make an advance directive on that. And in those days, we didn't have uh, advance directives in our legislation, uh, so. Uh, we then get a gathering in our bioethics committee, and we decided to just stand alone again with her. We make an advance directive and stating that uh, the problem uh, was that because of all the treatment she had gone through, uh, her organs weren't suited for transplantation. And uh, so she asked that uh, her body uh, be donated to science so medical doctors could find a cure for her illness and we make an advance directive of that yeah and i'll just i'll just mention that in most states that i've worked you have to be 18 to fill out an advance directive it's a pre-requirement of legally in the statute you have to be at least 18. so susie why did you think it was important for this patient to have an advance directive uh, because she was feeling empowerment with this advanced directive, she uh, had a, a sense of being in control of what was happening, although uh, everything was just not in control uh, because the illness just get, get on. Uh, but uh, I felt that uh, she needed to be uh, her own voice. And uh, this was very important for her. And as an advocate for uh, rights of children, uh, I talked with all the health team and told them that this was important. And uh, we agree what was, uh, she was asking. Her mother was agreed with that. So uh, there was not a case that, you know, a part thinks A and the other thinks B. Uh, we, are, we were all in agreement. But I felt that uh, this girl needed to be her own voice. 
Right. So it's not as if this was then a legally binding document. It was you gave her the document to voice what she wanted as a way to empower her. And everyone was in agreement with what she had to say. So it wasn't as if we were overruling her mother. It was more that she felt powerful by and she felt in control by writing her wishes down in a document. That's okay. Yeah. So, so far, not the hardest case. So what you got to keep, I guess you'll have to keep going. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, um, we talk a, a lot about uh, with her. I was going to, to visit her in her room uh, every day and spent one hour, one hour and a half. Uh, there was a, a situation where she was very depressed and the medical doctors told me to talk with her. Uh, they were thinking that she was depressed because the illness was going on and she was getting worse. And uh, I was have a sense that uh, there was something else that was making her depressed. And when I talked with her, she was turning 18 uh, and uh, she felt that uh, all her pals were going to the university and she was not allowed to do that because of the treatment. So uh, she was feeling like uh, kind of discriminated, you know, uh, discriminated by life, not by people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, I asked her what she liked, uh, that she um, that we're going to think about university, not as a whole career, but as uh, a little uh, events that she was, she could attend. And uh, she told me that she liked uh, photography and theater. And so uh, here in Argentina, the National University has a place where you can uh, have extension uh, subjects about you know, theater, photography, literature, drawing, and they are like uh, a semester of these uh, subjects. So I talked with the director in that place and I asked him to help me this with this girl to go through this uh, kind of uh, a long semester. Uh, but this was very hard to do it because she couldn't move for that time. So I had to talk with the hospital to let her go out with an ambulance to attend this class and to go back to the hospital. And uh, so this was really hard, but we made it. And uh, she was very happy with that. But then the illness go on, she was worsening. And uh, when she was really having a hard time, she asked to talk to me and she told me, uh, please help me to die. Wow, that's that's heavy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Um, so is it is it your, the practice for you when you're doing clinical ethics consultations to spend that much time with patients? Uh, yes, I try to whenever they want it, because, uh, you know, sometimes you have a very good relation with one and not a good relation with the other. So uh, I just there all the time whenever they want me to be there. It's uh, sort of amazing that your job allows that, that you have the time for that. I think often clinical ethicists feel so busy, just like all the other healthcare professionals, that they don't have time to arrange things like that, time to get that close to their patients. 
So that seems like a wonderful gift that you were able to give her by being able to invest that time. Yes. Yes, for me, it was very important. And, and you know that uh, I'm still in, in touch with her mother and her brothers. So I think that we could did uh, we did a good job. Right, but that also means that that closeness made her request probably even more emotionally difficult for you. Or you were, your emotions then are a little bit more entwined in her. Do you think that that made the next steps harder? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. It was really, really hard decision and a hard case. And I still wondering if I did the right thing. Mm. Well, so she requests, she says, I want you to help me die. My guess is you don't have euthanasia laws or physician-assisted suicide laws in Argentina. So what would that mean for her? Uh, that was really the, the quest. So uh, I asked her what she meant by that. Uh, because, uh, I mean, it's not common to hear a pediatric patient just asking you help me to die. That's not common. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, when I asked her, she told me that when she was a little girl, she had a dog uh, named Lola, and Lola get ill. Uh, the veterinarian came to the home and put her to sleep. So she told me that that what she wanted, and uh, I I spent a lot of time talking with her, uh, trying to explain her that I could agree well with what he she was asking, uh, that I understand her, that I stand by her, but that was illegal. And that was a limit that I cannot cross. And uh, she got very angry with me, <laughs> really, really angry with me and with all the health team. Um, uh, you know, that even make a, a break in the health team because nurses were most uh, more prone to accept what she was asking. Uh, but doctors said nobody wants to be one to execute that kind of decision. And uh, so, I mean, uh, palliative care is a very small team in my, my hospital. We are just five people. <laughs> break five people into five pieces it's very difficult to to go on working and uh, uh she was so angry that uh she thought of um, contacted lawmakers and stakeholders in the legislation and to to just ask them to to change the law mm -hmm. to to have an euthanasia law mm -hmm. and in that moment, I make one of my hardest mistakes in my life, my professional life, but I think that I would make it again. Hmm. Uh, when uh, she told me that uh, with her mother that we are going to the media and explain that they want an euthanasia law, I said, you are mistake. mistaken because uh, it's not going to be easy to talk to society, such as saying doctors don't want to put my baby to sleep, don't want to put my girl to sleep, and I want them to kill my daughter. That's not something that you go to the media and say. And uh, 
he take my word for granted. And when they went to the media, they said that she was suffering and that weren't treating her suffering. And we were exposed to the media. Uh, it was a very hard time because we are not used to that. And uh, we decided not to uh, speak back to what they were saying in the media and to stand along and stand by her. And uh, it was very difficult because uh, it's like uh, we lost her trust in us in that moment. Yeah. I have, Susie, not been part of a case where the patient or their family brought the case directly to the media. I've, I have friends who've had that happen to them and I've actually commented on some things that I've seen in the media, in the press, but from what I understand, it is so difficult because the hospital usually won't speak back to the situation because it might reveal things about the patient or their family that can't be revealed under the law. And so it, it makes it very difficult to sort of see the whole picture the media often tends to portray things as more simple than they really are um, because that's what gets headline news and not sort of complex stories that are really difficult. Um, I don't know, Tyler, do you have more experience with this sort of thing? No, thank goodness. I um, <clears throat> have not been involved in a case that's, I haven't been directly involved in a case that's ended up in the media, although um, kind of tangentially similar to, to your experience, Devin. But it, that, that's exactly been my experience as well, that there is so much uh, information and nuance and context that go into all types of medical treatment decisions. And that's not uh, what the news media is interested in. And often if the family is using going to the media in order to get some sort of interest or attention or to, to kind of position for a different particular point, uh, or a law change, then they are they they do have one pretty specific goal in mind, and um, patient privacy laws really kind of limit the ability to, not to punch back because that's not what hospitals do, but to provide a, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Mm -hmm. It has been successful here, though. So I remember the Brittany Maynard case. So she was a young woman in California who advocated for physician aid in dying and um, was eventually California did pass legislation to allow for physician aid in dying um, as partly as a result of the publicity around her case. So it's not as if this is unprecedented or couldn't have worked, although she was an adult and it's um, perhaps even more delicate and sensitive with a child. So, and, and the loss of trust, I just hear you, Susie, like what could you possibly have done? Maybe you could have, said something different to, but really if this is what she wanted and it was illegal and you weren't going to do something illegal i don't know how you wouldn't have lost her trust especially when she got that angry uh yeah you know i get angry too <laughs> i was very <laughs> very angry with her because i i was thinking uh what you exactly said i cannot do it differently so uh i remember a very old medical doctor in my hospital that just came to my office and told me, please go back to her room. You don't have a right to be angry with her, but she got mm -hmm. all the right to be angry with you. So you're going to knock on her door 
every day as you did these past few years and until she let you in again. And that's what I did. And uh, she let me in again. Uh, and uh, it was um, a hard time too, because uh, it was difficult for all the team to decide uh, palliative sedation, because uh, it was difficult to treat her suffering, but uh, no medical doctor wanted to be the one who uh, dropped the last drop uh, in palliative sedation. And uh, it was difficult because she had a very, uh, she was very resistant to sedation because of all the medications she has gone through. So uh, it was, uh, you know, we, we were doubting about what uh, uh, kind of doses we had to, to use with her. And uh, the other thing was that she didn't want to leave the hospital. I mean, uh, she was very angry with us. Her family was very angry with us, but she didn't want to leave the hospital. Uh, she could have done it. And so uh, we decided to talk with a, uh, an adult palliative care physician uh, to know for sure that we just uh, were dealing uh, with right doses for palliative sedation. We were doing the right thing with this girl as she was grown up in those days. And uh, we knew that we were doing the right thing, but it was very, very difficult. Uh, I mean, it's not the best scenario at the end of life to have your patient being angry with you and the health team being angry, each one <laughs> with the other. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was really, really, really difficult. Devin, can you explain um, just briefly what palliative sedation means? That might be a new term for some of our listeners. All right. So how I understand palliative sedation is, um, so when we have patients um, typically at the end of life who have irremediable suffering, um, just suffering that can't be relieved in the typical ways, we will use medications to sedate them so that they're not experiencing that pain anymore. Um, and it can be so much medication that it's also sedating them, right? So they're becoming sleepy. They're not conscious anymore. Um, I think that's somewhat rare. Um, this isn't sort of a typical way that we give pain medication at the end of life. We actually try to keep people alert if they want so they can say their goodbyes, so they can sort of be cognizant of what's going on. Um, but for some patients, that's just not an option. And some patients might not want that. Um, so Susie, was the idea with the palliative sedation that she just didn't want to be aware anymore? Or was this really the only way to relieve her suffering? Uh, no, we use, uh, first, at the beginning, we use palliative sedation as a way of just breaking the anguish circle where she was uh, so that she could have a rest three, four days, then wake up and talk again. But uh, whenever we did this, uh, whenever she was, she woke up, she was going to say the same. She wanted to die. And uh, she was angry because we didn't want her to help her die. And uh, so we talked with her again, with her, her mom and her brothers, and told her that uh, we could make her unconscious uh, and to wait uh, death, uh, being unconscious, but that 
was a way of uh, just thinking of another things that she didn't want because uh, that would mean that she would probably have to go to the ICU, that uh, she would probably have to uh, talk about uh, nutrition and artificial uh, artificial nutrition and hydration. And that was uh, some other treatment that she didn't want. So it was really hard to talk about being unconscious till death with this patient. And as you say, uh, even, uh, we don't want our patients to be unconscious and neither do they. They want to be awake. They want to be with their uh, loved ones. Uh, so uh, my my feeling, my very, very personal feeling was that uh, she didn't want to be what she was, the main actress of her death. She didn't want to see her dying. And uh, she was mm -hmm. just asking for help for that. Why, Susie, couldn't you have... Were there other things to have stopped that would have allowed a more natural death? Could you have said no more artificial hydration and nutrition? Could you have, what other kind of, was there any way to withdraw any treatments that would have allowed her to die naturally? Or was that not an option? She didn't have those treatments in those days. She did, She wasn't on a ventilator. She wasn't on a, a artificial hydration or nutrition. She wasn't even having, uh, I don't know, antibiotics. Uh, all she all she had, the main thing she had, was a comfort care uh, with uh, sedation. Uh, she even could eat and drink whatever she wants. I remember one uh, one day, uh, they uh, she was just uh, eating some yogurt, and uh, when she just finished with the yogurt, she asked for uh, jelly, <laughs> and I said. You are asking me to help you die, and you want to go on eating. Uh, you just asking me to help you die, and you just asking if they pay the internet bill, and you want to meet the a baby of your pal. Uh, I was doubting. Uh, are you really wanted to die? Uh, it was very difficult, you know, we are not used to in pediatrics to hear such a rational uh, speech about dying. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not common that. Mm -hmm. um, Susie, let me ask you a, a little bit different question. So in, in the United States, as I'm sure that you're aware that physician assisted suicide and euthanasia, um, well, euthanasia across the country is legally forbidden, but uh, Physician-assisted suicide is uh, some states allow it, and there's certain uh, requirements. What was what would have been the the legal ramifications if one of the physicians said, "Yes, I do agree with her. I'm going to go ahead and give her, you know, a massive dose of whatever." Um, what would have been the legal ramifications for that? I think that um, we would been to court. This medical doctor. Uh, maybe, maybe, I'm not quite sure because, uh, you know, it's very difficult to say what the judges would say in this case. But um, um, like uh, 10 years ago, we make a, a research with criminal courts about um, 
foregoing life-sustaining treatment. Uh, and uh, the answers were quite in favor even for uh, some kind of physician-assisted suicide. Uh, so maybe uh, in our uh, criminal procedure, uh, a judge will have considered that it was a, um, a criminal action, but uh, it, that it has some kind of justification in our criminal court uh, because he was trying to do the best for the patient. The patient just may uh, give her consent. And uh, this was like kind of saying, uh, I wouldn't just put a sanction on this kind of behavior. Maybe it would be that, but uh, you know, Argentina is a very uh, difficult country in all the senses. And uh, one of the things we have is that uh, we are all in our society, medical doctors, economists, politicians, uh, we have opinion for everything. So maybe this will be in the media before the courts, and it would be like saying a poll. Well, who is in favor of physician-assisted suicide? Me. Who is in favor? Not in favor. Me. Uh, it would be like a kind of thing. So, Susie, what happened next? What happened next? That uh, when uh, she entered into the agony situation, uh, we decided to uh, put uh, palliative sedation to make her unconscious till the end, and. Um, we call a priest to to give her uh, to say goodbye to all uh, her family. Uh, he she asked me to be there uh, when the medical doctors uh, did palliative sedation uh, in the agony, and it was very hard because of all this uh, medical resistance she had to sedation. Uh, I. Uh, I see medical doctors breaking on poles of methadone and morphine because she woke up three times oh, wow. before. And the three times she woke up, she was talking. I mean, it's not that uh, she was dizzy and, and drowsy. No, no, she was talking when she woke up. And it was very hard because uh, it was like, you you wanted to die. You told us you wanted to die, and you're not dying. Mm -hmm. uh, and we we have this sense that we weren't sure that she really wanted to die at the end. Mm. And uh, I don't know. Uh, it was very hard. All I know that I was there for her uh, in the way I could, in the only way I could, and. Uh, the the very important part of this that uh, it was that a uh, long time uh from that moment two three four years her mom contacted me by cell phone and i had a very sweet uh remembering from me remembrance from me she she told me that i was the best for her and for her family and uh, that she was really grateful because I was there. And uh, so in the end, it seems that I did the right thing. 
what was the most challenging part for you from like a obviously like the emotions of it and being connected to the the patient um is uh, really emotionally uh difficult but what from a clinical ethicist's perspective do you think um made this an, an even more challenging case uh i think that uh, the most challenging part of a i would say uh, most of the cases uh, as a lawyer and a clinical ethicist is that sometimes law is not enough and and it's really hard to work on that uh, because I don't have the answers and uh, it's, you know, there are some situations that are so blurred between law and ethics that uh, it's really hard to give an answer. And people are just waiting for you to give an answer. And uh, when I, I, I say people, it's not only the patient at the family, it's your uh, your your mates at the health team. They just looking at you and say, ah, oh, you know the law. What this is not lawful. <laughs> and I have no answer. That's that's really a very hard hard part of, of my work because they are all waiting for the law to give them an answer. And that's not possible. And that's the beautiful part because that's amazing that we don't have all the answers. Yeah, I agree. I think I run into that quite a bit where people conflate the ethicist with the hospital lawyer or think that there must be a law that governs everything adequately. But of course, that's not true. And thank goodness it's not true because cases are all unique. And if we had a law that could speak to everything, it probably wouldn't be a very good instrument for parsing through these difficult, specific cases. So some laws are helpful, but I, I actually am glad that there isn't a perfect law for every situation. I'm not sure we would then need ethicists. Um, what do you think, Tyler? I think we definitely would need ethicists. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just such a, the thing that I love about our work and, and my job is that almost everything is in the gray area. There are very few, like even uh, like like principles or laws or you know consensus statements, of, because each case is so unique and so, um, so much a part of the narrative of of the family and the patient that it's you know almost impossible to do, to have some sort of legislation that that would cover all of the different ways in which these cases come come up and come about. So. I agree, I, but I, I think that we, ethicists, somebody who is comfortable with wading into that gray area and being able to still provide some sort of help and recommendations and some way to move forward is, is a role that I think is really critical. Well, Susie, we thank you so much for sharing that very difficult story. Um, I can tell that it still affects you. Even if you think you did the right thing, there's always this kind of residue of it was hard. And it, and it, our jobs are not easy. And I, I thank you for sharing, being vulnerable enough to share that really tough story. Yeah, thank you for, for hearing me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure for me to be with you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast 
and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Thank you.